We should get started here. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, for you have wonderfully shown your steadfast love to us. Fill us with love of your will and your word. Give us strength and courage, for we wait for you. In your most holy name we pray. Amen. Okay. What questions do you have? Any questions? So we're moving along here pretty quickly. I don't know if Pastor Nelson mentioned that the plan is to finish Mark by the end of the year. This is the plan. We'll see what happens. If you don't slow us down by talking about everything, we'll, uh, we'll make our way. Um, one of the things to note about is, is how the tenor of Mark has changed. Once we got to Mark 11, we had the triumphal entry, which really marks... So you remember the big outline. The center of the book is Mark chapter 8 with this confession that Peter gives... Who do people say that I am? Jesus says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then the next episode, get behind me, Satan, because Peter doesn't want Jesus to suffer and die. There's a similar turning point that happens in Mark 11 with the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, which begins Passion Week. Um, And so it's, it's sort of like we spent the first 10 chapters of Mark sort of learning about Jesus in... Um, episodes that revealed more and more about him and in which he met people's criticisms of him, right? Remember from the beginning, things were, people were concerned about things like, you're not following the Sabbath. Your disciples, you know, they're eating grain on the Sabbath. You're healing on the Sabbath. Um, and Jesus is sort of fielding these uh, complaints and giving good reasons for, you know, why he's doing the things that he's doing. Something sort of shifts as we move further into Mark. And so they, you know, he's, he's, deftly handled all of their accusations, and now things turn back on them, okay? So that happened already in chapter 11 as Jesus comes in and cleanses the temple, right? So this is, he's not, he's not just sort of walking about, you know, for people to observe any longer. He's bringing the, bringing the game into their home court, okay? Um, so we see some of that happen in stark detail here in chapter 12, at the end of chapter 12. So what I think I'd like to do is listen to Mark 12, Um, I was thinking of just starting at verse 28, but I think maybe we should give it a running start and start all the way at the beginning of chapter 12 or earlier in the the chapter. Uh, Do you have any questions or should we, let's let's just give this a listen and see, see how it goes. Okay. I don't know about you, but I, but I find that just to be captivating to listen to. Um, For one thing, because it gives... It gives um, life to Mark. It's easy to read Mark, especially the way we read it um, so often in church, in small little snippets um, that are removed from the context. And this is just by necessity, right? Because we're, we're not going to read it all. I mean, we could if you want to. We could just read it from beginning to end altogether. But um, we read it in these pericopes, and so we lose the context. Um, but you see how it's all connected, how this drama is unfolding, um, so that by the time we get to verse 38, he's, I mean, he's already laid it on thick, right? They knew that he was talking about them in the parable of the wicked vine dressers. They knew that he was talking about them, about, uh, he, that he was talking about them. And now he comes in and he's, he's basically pointing at them in their long robes and as they're making these prayers, and he's saying of them that they receive the greater condemnation, right? No, there's no equivocation here. It's very clear what he's doing. What are your, anything stand out to you? Any questions you have? Any observations you want to make? 
Carol. Strictly on the on the. Uh, on the which? Theater. Oh yes. Sitting force of drink, and then he sits erect with his hands on both sides of the goblet. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of the icon. Oh, sure. Yeah. I wonder if he did that intentionally. Uh, Jesus, the Pantocrator, who, sit, who sits beside, with, the, with the chalice. Yeah. The, the two hands like that. And just... Yeah. Huh. And Well, because, of course, what is, what is he saying right in that moment? He's saying these... Most important words to the people of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't perceive that. That's, I'd be curious to see whether he did it on purpose. Could be. Yeah. Jesus was or Alec. Yeah, could be. We don't know what was in that picture. So. It is kind of dark. Yeah, yeah. But good. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, and I, it is not to, it's easy for us to sort of gloss over the, what Jesus says, the words that he uses here. But these words, the Shema, Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. Shema, let me write it down. Shema, um, this is my first time writing on this board. That's pretty sweet. That's nice. That's thick. Good. Um, Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. This was basically... The, the creed for the people of Israel, and it contains, so the reason why Jesus uses it here is because, of course, it contains the first table of the law. What, you, what does God expect of you? That you love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I have a, just a little video here from that same organization that makes the sort of cartoonish movies. They've got one, a series about the words in the Shema, but here's their introduction to the Shema. Sorry, Mary, I should have given you more warning. Um, it's just four minutes long. I think you, you might just find it to be a helpful illumination of what's going on there. Ready? It is, it is kind of intuitive, of course, that you can't. You say you say this to your kids, right? When you tell them to do something and they say, "I heard you," but then they haven't done it. You say, "You didn't. You weren't really listening, right? You weren't really listening." Um, so it's intuitive that all of that is entailed in the word "listen." Um, but you can see how easy it is to deceive ourselves because. Um, it's easy to hear things and to be able, in fact, to sort of recite them, to, you know, say back what we've heard. But what Jesus wants or wants from us, what God wants from us, and what the word listen really means is digesting it, right? Not just having it come into your intellect, but coming into your whole person, which is incidental. Again, this is why um, the Shema has this description of the whole person, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, which is not describing like four different parts of the person, but it's a way of saying the whole, the whole of you, right? Not just with your emotions, not just with your intellect, not just with your bodies, that's possible too, right? But with the whole of you. Um, so now, if uh, God's command in Deuteronomy is to listen and obey, right? Love the Lord your God. And then in Leviticus 19, this is the second part of the command, the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. How have the people of Israel, in what we see in Mark, how have they failed to listen and obey? Yeah, so... Giving, but they weren't really in the way that the was given. Sure. So you have um, 
for instance, is an echo of Cain and Abel, right? Cain's offering was not acceptable because he didn't give of his first fruits. He gave um, some of the produce of his field, whereas Abel gave this acceptable offering, right? Um, it's interesting to, uh, so think about this. Well, hang, hang on to that thought for a second. You're right. We see some of that here in the, in the story of the widow's might. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But what else do you see? How else does Israel fail to listen and obey? Yeah, Nancy. It's just kind of like the you know, big letter of the law as far as type. The spirit of the law, they can conveniently ignore. That's right. Yep. The letter they, they keep, but the spirit they ignore. Um, do you remember earlier in Mark we had this story about um, things devoted to God, Korban? Do you remember this? How they, he said, Jesus says to them, if it's Mark chapter 7 maybe about traditions, right? He says, how isn't it convenient the way you substitute the traditions of men for the commandments of God? Um, what you do is you say to somebody who uh, needs to support his parents, you say, all he has to do is say, everything that I have is devoted to God, and then he doesn't have to support his parents. And so he's doing this apparently pious, devout thing. He's giving everything he's got to God, conveniently ignoring the heart of the law, which is you're responsible for the people in your life, right? Um, that's absolutely right. So the, so the, the externals, and you get this in the, the you know, Jesus' invectives against the scribes. Um, they walk around in long robes. They like greetings. They like the external stuff. They like feeling, they like being told that they're pious or being perceived as pious, um, but then this little phrase that's in here, so you do all of these things, but you devour widows' houses, right? In, in no situation is it okay to devour a widow's house, right? Um, and especially under pretense of being godly. And even um, the scribes were, by some accounts, at least somewhat responsible for ensuring. They were the people who were enlisted to ensure that the widows received their rights. Um, so, I mean... You, it's remarkable how easily they do that, how easily they, they absorb the external things but forget the heart of the law. Marilyn, you were going to say something. I was just thinking about how they rejected John. Yeah. And they couldn't say where he came from because they had it all figured out. That's right. And what's the, what's the very simple, silly reason that they can't, they can't talk about John? Because well, who are they afraid of? The people, right? That's why they also, even now, are, are unable to arrest Jesus because they're, you know, they're afraid of the people. They have no conviction whatsoever. They just want to, to have um, their status, right? Yeah. Any, so think also then about um, the temple. So it's not just the actions of individual people. This is one of the important things to realize about these chapters. Um, there are individual people involved, but Jesus is really going after the institution, um, and one of the things that's dangerous about institutions is that they protect people, right? It's easy to be a non, an anonymous participant in an institution, right? So you, this is why we, corporations, limited liability corporations, are wonderful things, right? Because you you, you're not liable for the faults of your, your corporation. The same thing with institutions, that you can hide in an institution. Of course, if you buy into an institution, if you devote yourself to it, as the scribes do, you're complicit, Right? So even if you're not the one actually taking from the widows, right, you're guilty for that because you're supporting and sustaining this institution. Um, and the institution here really is embodied in the temple. Okay, so Jesus comes in in chapter 11 and overturns the tables. And then, so then listen to um, this first part, verses 28 through 34, picturing 
picturing the scene, right? So Jesus has a few days before come in and upturned all of the tables, and now he is here in the temple, and the scribe comes up to him and asks him this question, and Jesus gives him a very straightforward, clear as, I mean, there's no, this is the answer everybody should give, right? There's no ambiguity here. This is, in fact, if you asked the leader, religious leaders, they would have given the same answer. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the sum and substance of the law. Um, and Jesus, so Jesus says it as though it's really obvious. But notice what happens. The scribe replies and says, yeah, you're right. That's the answer I would have given. But then, it's almost, this is the way I picture it. It's almost like he gives his answer and, then, and, and expounds on it a little bit more and then realizes what he's saying, okay? To love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices, right? So here's now a scribe in the temple. Burnt offerings and sacrifices are happening around, and he said this thing, and then what happens? Nobody asks him any more questions, right? Um, it's like all of a sudden he realized, or they realized, what was this obvious, obvious truth. And it come, that comes from Scripture, too. So Jesus' statement about the law, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love your neighbor as yourself. That comes from Levit- Leviticus 19. And this, this addition that the um, scribe gives from 1 Samuel about sacrifices and burnt offerings, that's, I mean, this is King David. This, we've been, the people of Israel have known this for, since the beginning of the kingdom. I, this story is great. Um, Saul has failed to be the king. This is 1 Samuel 15. Saul has failed miserably and sinned in all kinds of ways, including taking it upon himself to offer sacrifices um, against the, what Samuel has told him to do. So Samuel is the prophet. He delivers God's word. Saul is the king. He is not supposed to offer sacrifices. This is the job of the priests and of, and of Samuel. And Samuel says to Saul, don't offer a sacrifice. It's a very simple command. Don't do it. Don't do it. I'll be here in seven days. Don't do it. And seven days passed, and the clock is still ticking. Not seven days are up yet, and, Sam, and Saul can't wait any longer. So he offers a sacrifice, and guess what happens? Samuel shows up, and Samuel says, that was, you broke God's command. And this is not a trivial offense. This isn't like, oh, you just made a little mistake. Your, king, your kingship is over. But then he, then he um, explains why that's the case. He says to Saul, Samuel says, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? So there are some people who are especially responsible for the way that institutions go astray, right? Especially the kingdom of Israel, especially churches, right? This is why the shepherds of Israel um, and pastors are, uh, you know, bear, uh, the, there's a greater judgment in store for those who are unfaithful, Right? Though you are little in your own eyes, Samuel says to Saul, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And then Samuel says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? This is obvious, right? What does God want from you more than anything? Not that you offer him sacrifices. He wants that if you are doing it in the right way, if you're doing it with a clean heart. He wants you to obey his voice. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Um, so this scribe repeats this sentiment here. It's so obvious, and uh, the judgment against the temple, the judgment against the people of Israel is just sort of mounting, right? They should know better. They should know better. Think again of the fig tree, right? The fig tree, which didn't know better, 
was, con- was cursed. They should know better. Okay. What other questions do you have? Any other things you have noticed? Think now about the episode of the, the widow and her mite. Um, Jody, you said, you pointed out that, you know, they're giving out of their abundance. Although, so I think that that's true. I think it's true and we can, we can sort of criticize them for um, doing, it, doing something easy. It's not, real, it's not real service, right? It doesn't cost, them, doesn't cost them anything. It's like, so I was thinking, as I was preparing for this, I was thinking about Paul Allen, who died recently, Microsoft co-founder worth $20 billion when he died, um, had given away $2 billion over the course of his life, right? And was named Philanthropist of the Year in 2012 because the previous year he'd given away $372 million, which is all very good, right? He's done, he's done miraculous things. Although, in some sense, um, it's not that impressive, right? Compared to what he has. Yeah, even $2 billion. Jump change. No big deal, right? Which isn't to say, now this is the interesting thing, which isn't to say we can make any sort of judgment about his motives or whether it was faithful giving. I have no idea. I just know it wasn't that impressive, right? The the sheer quantity of money wasn't that impressive. Although he did it and helped a lot of people. That's a wonderful thing. That's exactly right. So the absolute value of it is in the good that it does. But in terms of credit to him, you know, who knows? But by the, same, by the same stroke, we can't really say about these people who are putting in from their abundance that they're, that they're horrible people just because they have money and they're giving some of it, right? So, so then, so t- bear that thought in mind. What, do you, what, is the, what is this episode about? What's the point? Trust. Okay, okay. tell me more. Well, um, she gave what she had. Okay. Not knowing what's going to happen. Okay. But trusting that she didn't know and she may not like it, but she will be taken care of. I mean, she will have, taken care of, she will have enough. Now, definition of enough. Maybe yeah, right. Okay, so. Not being, as, you know, being hungry but not dying. It may be, who knows what it was. So, think, so I, read, I read for you 1 Kings 17 this morning, the widow of Zarephath, right? Elijah comes up to the widow, and um, he says this impossible thing to her. He says, give me some water. It's, it's a drought. Give me some water. And as she's going to get him some water, which is already a big thing to ask, he says, wait a minute. I'd like some bread, too, please. Um, and she says, I've got nothing. In fact, I'm going now to prepare. I'm gathering sticks to prepare our last meal so that my son and I can eat and die. Okay? And Elijah says to her, I know, do it anyway. God has said, this is what's going to happen, right? So God says explicitly, this is how I'm going to take care of you. Your oil jar will not run dry. Your pot of flour will not run empty. She does it. She's faithful. She listens. She believes. And she is cared for. What's interesting, though, in this case is we don't know whether the widow had any similar encounter with a prophet, right? Who told her to put her last two pennies into the treasury? Um, So, go ahead. Going back to your old Israel. Yeah. This is who God is, and then love God with all your heart. Okay. Yes. Okay, so um, does that then mean that 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and minds means that we should give everything that we've got. Okay. Right? This might have been the very last thing she had, and she couldn't do anything more. And she, I, no. And that's the point, I think. I think that's one thing to really bear in mind, right? We're, we're completely in the dark about this widow's motives, um, how she came to think that she should put in her last two pennies. All we know is that she did, right? And that Jesus observes about her. She's more faithful than all of these other people. And she gave out of her lack instead of out of her abundance. So in some sense, what Jesus is saying is, you said, you said she has very little to give. She, in fact, has nothing to give, right? If all you have is two pennies, which is going to maybe buy your last bit of bread, you have nothing to give, right? You have nothing to give. Um, okay, so, so I think it's important to note that we're really unsure about the widow, right? Jesus praises her, um, but we're not, it's not exactly clear what is so admirable about her, besides the, the, our assumption that she trusts that God will take care of her. Holly. I that I think so. Yeah. 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 So um, what? Think about it. What would impel a widow to give her last two pennies? Maybe if a prophet comes up to you and says you should do this and God's going to take care of you. Maybe if the scribes and the leaders of Israel are saying, you owe to the temple, otherwise we're not going to give you your rights as a widow, right? In exchange for your last two pennies, we'll take care of you, right? Um, which evidently was something that often happened, and this is exactly what Jesus is getting at, right? Um, was he, what, what do you mean, like, was he pointing out to the other ones that they actually didn't look at Right, yeah, so she's an, she's an example, that's right, she's an example of a widow's houses, a widow's house who's been, who's being devoured right now, yeah, yeah, I think that that's, I think that that's true, um, in which case that turns this episode a little bit on its head, right, it's really easy for us to read it as um, sort of an imperative, an exhortation for us to give everything that we've got, uh, but Jesus, we've already, we already learned in Mark that Jesus doesn't mean that for us, right? He says it to the rich young man, give all that you have, sell all that you have and give to the poor. Um, he says earlier, cut off your hand and your foot and your eye if they cause you to sin. But he's saying these things. Paul says it in the answer that the scribe gave that following the commandments is better than whole burnt offering. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Nancy. I mean, I thought in the context it was also just to point out to observers or whatever that we tend to really um, put great value on rich people who do things and we don't notice, you know, little people who are giving proportionally a lot. Yeah. And, you know, just this God sees things so differently from the way we do. Right. That comes up in James. James is great on this stuff. Um, he, he, make, he says, uh, you, when somebody rich comes into the congregation, you, you bend over backwards to treat them with hospitality. But when a poor person comes in, you make them sit in the lowest places and you treat them with uh, disrespect. Which is, and he says, 
you're basically not Christians if you do that. Because this is, you, you should know that it's not what your eyes see that matters, right? It's not the external things that matter. It's what's, what God does in a person's heart. And so riches or not riches have no bearing on the, the relative worth of a person, right? So I, he, he's, all of these things are bundled up, right? So we've got the faithfulness of the widow who's um, in, in many ways passively suffering from this, this messed up system, right? We've got Jesus teaching us how you shouldn't measure things just by absolute quantity, right? That's not the measure of faith. The dollar amount doesn't matter. doesn't matter. You can, like Paul Allen, accomplish a lot of good with more dollars, but that doesn't make you a better person, right? It just means that more good gets done, maybe in some sense, okay? Um, but I think that in all, one of the things that really comes to the fore here is the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders are so far from the way things should be, right? This is so upside down that a poor widow should be giving an offering in the temple is exact opposite of what God has said throughout the Old Testament, right? In fact, one of the principal ways that God delivers judgment against Israel is by saying, you've neglected the widows and the fatherless. This is echoing in their ears. You've neglected the widows and the fatherless. You cannot be my people if you do that. And I think the interesting question for us, or the really important question for us is, how do they get to be that way? How is it that something so godly can turn so upside down? Um, and, and they are so convinced of it. They're so sure that they're self-assured that they're doing the right thing. Um, that's a, I think it's really important to observe that and uh, reflect on our own lives, right? So uh, full disclosure, I'm going to be preaching on this in a few weeks, so I've thought about it a lot more. Um, but, and you'll get a preview here of the sermon. But I think that one of the things that comes to, comes to the fore is we're not, we're not immune from um, buying into institutions that, con- that consume widows' houses, right? That devour widows' houses and have the external glamour that we love so much. Um, think about just about anything that we buy into in culture, right? Or in society. Um, stuff that looks really good on the outside, but which is corrupt on the inside. I read a, I read a great article a few years ago when Volkswagen cheated on its emissions tests. Do you remember this? 2016, they were caught. And the article talked about how, the title of the article was, What Was Volkswagen Thinking? Which is a great question because, of course, it's obviously wrong. Everybody knows you shouldn't cheat on emissions tests. And you can't get away with it. You're going to get caught. What were they thinking, right? And the, the article was talking about um, the, why that happens and how we're prone to it. Which is a remarkable thing to think about. So the, um, there's a sociologist who gives the example of the Challenger space shuttle disaster. Maybe you remember um, there was a problem with a component, the O-rings, on the space shuttle. There had been previous launches, launches, and they had observed that there was a problem with this component. And every time they observed the problem, they just changed the parameters. So they said, well, this is an acceptable margin of error. And so they changed it bit by bit, bit by bit over time until eventually... It's completely, it's completely distant from what is actually acceptable, and then you end up with a disaster. The same thing happens with you know, uh, a big corporation that cheats on emissions tests. I mean, isn't it remarkable that everybody is, everybody is, will, is willing to say the, same, make, say the same lie, right, that we're, we're uh, following the law here? Well, it's actually pretty easy 
if you do it incrementally, bit by bit, and it makes your life easier to do it bit by bit, right? The point is that um, you should not think of yourselves as unlike the scribes, and you should not think of it in the sense that like, you might personally be devouring widows' houses. But you should think about the things that you invest yourselves in and, and you know, just ask the question, how, where, where have uh, these institutions, um, the things that you uh, are devoted to? I mean, I think of, I think of how easily things like, say, um, uh, you know, school activities or things that sort of consume our lives with our kids, right? How easily they, they edge into, bit by bit, they edge into something that takes precedence. It's so easy to happen because you love your kids and you want what's best for them. Um, and pretty soon, that's all that you want, right? It's very easy to do. Um, that happens across the board. Now, this is not just a warning. So Jesus says, beware of the scribes. But then he points to the widow, um, who is not just an example of faithfulness, somebody who's given everything that she's got, but she's also, she's also uh, a type of Jesus. She points ahead to Jesus. So think about this. Hold this in mind, right? Our institutions, the things that we love, devote ourselves to in this world, always fail. They always fail. They're never going to save us. They're never going to last. Always, always, always. Um, and if we, could, if we had to just rely on you know, great examples like the widow suffering, um, and we corrected every now and again because we saw what damage we had done and we tried to do better, we would fall into the same cycle over and over and over again. But Jesus comes along, and like the widow, he gives up everything he's got, right? So he goes from, she's got nothing at all, even what she has doesn't belong to her. It belongs to God. Jesus has everything, right? Everything belongs to him because he's God. He gives it all up so that he's got nothing. Suffers at the hands of the, this very institution that is, that is oppressing the widow. And he dies. Now, think about this. If he just died sort of out of solidarity for the widow, right? Here's this horrible thing that's oppressing this widow. And this is the way that, that people often, like social justice movements, often try to appropriate the Bible, right? We need to stand up for the oppressed. We need to stand up for the poor. And the way we do that is by suffering alongside them, which is a, which is a good thing to uh, have solidarity. But it doesn't solve the problem, right? What solves the problem is Jesus not just suffering alongside her, but rising from the dead, Right? So he dies at the hands of a corrupt human institution and then rises from the dead so that he can institute something new, a new temple, okay? a new temple with perfect sacrifices, perfect love, perfect, perfect mercy, perfect compassion, um, a new priesthood. So this is what the reference to the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That's from Psalm 110, which is the same Psalm where Jesus says, where God says, um, I have made you a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Because what we need is not a Levitical priest, somebody who's going to go into the Holy of Holies and make offerings all the time, offerings that can't really save us from our sins. We need somebody new, a new priesthood, somebody after the order of Melchizedek who has no beginning, who has no end, um, and who can make a perfect sacrifice. Um, and that's what Jesus comes along to do. We've got an, with Jesus, we've got a new temple and a new institution, something that is not human, not made with human hands, 
right? So it's not prone to corruption. And it's something that actually sets out to do good. I mean, this is the thing about human institutions. They always set out to do good, right? But then by these incremental bits of deviance, all of a sudden they're doing the opposite, right? That's not going to happen with what Jesus institutes. Um, and it's our only hope. Which is why, so this is what's happening in Mark. Um, and this is why this, you know, just taking this pericope, I, I, I uh, struggled with this text for, this, for the sermon that I'm going to preach because it's just out of context. We need the whole context because it's not, it's not just about give everything you've got to God. It's accelerating the story forwards towards the cross where the problem is finally solved because the problem is not solved by you giving your last penny, right? It's not solved. Um, so, there, I didn't mean to preach at you like that. I'm sorry. Um, you still have to come to church when I preach my sermon. It's not written yet. Um, but then, but so, so take stock. Examine your lives. This is the, so we're coming up on the Reformation here. Jesus, Martin Luther, the first thesis that he posts on the door. The life of a Christian. By, by, by saying repent in Matthew, Jesus means for the life of a Christian to be one of repentance. Continual repentance. And that repentance... Um, is always meant to turn us back to Jesus, right? It's not, to meant, it's not meant to turn us towards trying to solve all of our problems or trying to fix the things that are wrong with the world, but to recognize that we can't fix them. Um, and we need Jesus on the cross, rising from the dead, to do that. Do you have any questions? Yes, Aaron. I don't have a, I have a question, but I just, this reminds me so much of something we see in Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, you were, t- you were saying, like, how did it get to this point? And thinking about um, the terrible things that they're doing in the synagogue. Yeah. You know, starting in verse 30, where it's talking about how they act, how they walk around, and they wear the robes, and they feel really good. Yeah. And, and what's crazy is, like, this is an institution that, it, it, it's the church, it's, it's attempting to be yeah. God's people. Like, of course, they are trying to do good. Um, thinking about about myself and our community it's like you know we talk about excellence and we talk about um, we talk about doing things for God yeah really really well yeah in the name of excellence and being Christians who are excellent in all these realms of the world and and uh, you know we're like we're going to be the best Christians yeah That is, I mean, and that is endemic to American Christianity. But here's the thing. Here's the important thing to note. This is, this is built into human nature because of the fall into sin. So you, you could tell any story of a broken institution in this way. The Roman, the Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation um, was trying to do good works. Monasticism, pilgrimages, was trying to assuage people's guilty consciences. We want to give you a way to feel, to feel like you, Jesus loves you. Here, I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you something to do 
to, make the, to help you feel that way. And then you accumulate it. And so now all of, a, all of a sudden, in order to be a good Christian, you have to be a monk. You have to be a religious person. You have to uh, pay for masses and so on and so forth. Right? It's, so, it's, so, it's, um, it's so easy for that to happen. Um, and it's not just religious institutions. And it perhaps it's more crass in non-religious institutions. Right? Um, maybe not. It's, one of the things about the widow is, um, look, you know, the scribes are interested in these really shallow things. Super. I mean, you look at them and you're like, Who are, what kind of people do this? Walk around in long robes and love it when people say, hey, you look great in that long robe. Or when they, when they pray, make long prayers. I try to pray short prayers. My, I want my prayers to be the shortest ones, all right? Because um, when they pray long prayers, um, who, you know, who does that? Um, but what's the real, the real thing is not just the pretense, but that for their shallow gain... They're gratifying the desires of their flesh. They're hurting the soul of this widow, right? Because she thinks, this is, this is one possible interpretation, and I think it's the sound one that makes sense of the whole story. She thinks that, by, that she's doing a meritorious service to God by giving her last two pennies, by, by giving everything that she's got so she's got nothing to live on. She thinks she's pleasing God. What pleases God is for her to live, not to die. What pleases God is for, um, for the church to care for her. Um, and so that, that's, where, that's where the church becomes particularly culpable. And, I mean, and this is why the church is always reforming. The church is always reforming. Um, and that's, you know, that's the great heritage of the Reformation. Um, as soon as we sit back on our laurels and don't think, you know, ask ourselves why we do the things we do, um, we're, we're in trouble. Um, but again, it is fundamental to human nature, right? And it's something, that's why the, you know, when something like the Volkswagen emissions cheating shows up and you have people reflecting on how this can happen, it's actually really helpful because it's helpful to a point. Um, everybody thinks they can solve the problem of broken institutions. Everybody thinks they can solve it. And we're, you know, not optimists in the church about that kind of stuff. You can't solve it. Can't solve it. Yeah, Marilyn. I always think back, I remember one time studying the Old Testament, and I kept thinking to myself, why are those people so dumb? They don't yeah, right. falling into sin. But the truth is that so do we. That's our life story out of the heart, communal thought. Yeah, right. Murder and all those sins. Right. And that's how it got in the priesthood, and that's how it got in the children. Yeah. And that's how it gets in us. Right. And, and so, I mean, a really valuable lesson to take from this is, so we know, we know um, individually what it looks like to, be re- to reflect on your own life, your own thoughts, your own actions, and, and um, repent, to acknowledge your sin, to repent, to trust that Jesus forgives your sins. It is a bit harder, I think, to do that on a, on a grander scale, on the scale of the things, the, thing, the things that seem to be good that we invest ourselves in. Right, the institutions that we love. Um, yeah, I mean, so I was thinking. I was thinking about this. Um, some of the, it's remarkable that in America we, there's a lot of discussion about ethics. Right, ethics is all over. People are people are always asking the question: What's right and wrong? What's good? What's good? Um, is it is it right for um, 
you know, take your pick. Immigra things like immigration, things like racism, things like sex. I mean, sex is such a fascinating thing because look at the look at the state of things in America. We have we have honest to goodness, like real, earnest people asking the question. You know, when what is consent? What is consent? When is it? When is sex actually consensual? When it, and when is it good? The answer is obvious, right? The answer is obvious, and yet. Uh, incrementally, bit by bit, the conversation has been moved so far that now we're having this really earnest conversation way over here. We're so far from the, the real solution, which is right here. Right? Um, anyway, those examples abound. That's all over the place. It's, it's harder to take stock of those things in our lives, um, but we should do it. Um, and put not your trust in princes, as the psalmist says. Right? That's a lot to think about here. I'm going to keep thinking about it, too, because I've got to write a sermon. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Come back next week. Yes, Carol. Thank you. I have one thing. Kind of maybe you can call it widow's mites or whatever. But if any of you have or know people who have Legos, bits and pieces of Legos don't need, you know, they want to get rid of Put them in a bag and bring them. We'll use them for Christmas sharing. The kids love them. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, you can never have too many Legos when you're a kid. <laughs>